Dogs can hear sounds that people cannot. Believers can see what others cannot. Believers can see the work of God in their own lives and in the world. The eye of faith sees issues and events so differently from those who do not have an eye of faith. We are told in the scripture that God sees things differently than we see. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance to the height or to his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks upon the heart. As we grow in our understanding, as we grow in our faith, as we grow in the knowledge of the scriptures, our thinking becomes more like God's thinking. This morning, I want to emphasize the importance of the eye of faith, sometimes referred to as a Christian perspective or a Christian worldview, looking at life through faith in God. First, the eye of faith as it views the trustworthiness of scriptures. The eye of skepticism and unbelief looks at the scriptures and see it as untrustworthy. Take, for example, our scripture portion this morning, starting at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 55. There we find Saul's inquiry concerning David's father. Some have suggested that the text before us leads us to the conclusion that Saul is not familiar with David or David's father. It is further suggested that such a conclusion is incompatible with the narrative of chapter 16. For in chapter 16, we find David playing a harp, being in the court of Saul. And then here we have chapter 17, of which Saul is inquiring concerning father, David's father. They conclude that the narratives are at best not in chronological order, that you, you must see chapter 17 coming after chapter 16 chronologically. They view that at best and at worst simply that the scriptures are untrustworthy and you can't take them seriously. Well, the eye of faith that takes God into account looks at the very same material, this narrative, and comes to an entirely different conclusion. For example, it is a leap based on this narrative that one would assume that Saul had never met David before. So we want to answer a couple of questions. First, why doesn't Saul refer to David by name? Is it because Saul doesn't know David's name? Well, if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 55, it states, As soon as Saul was, saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Whose son is this youth? A note, though, Saul does not ask concerning what the boy's name is. He refers to David as a youth and as a boy for the context is David's lack of military experience as he goes out to fight against Goliath. 
If you look at verse 33, it reads, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight for him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So Saul is referring to David as a youth because of David's age and inexperience in battle. So it isn't amazing that as he looks upon David going to battle, he continues to refer to him as a youth and as a boy. We would expect that to be the case. The second issue is that Saul asks Abner, who is the father of this youth? Verse 55. As soon as Saul said to David, go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Why would Saul ask that question when it states in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18, one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good patience, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent him messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. So why would he ask who David's father is when in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it's told to him that David's father is Jesse. Well, first of all, one can hear a comment without paying much attention to it. It would not be unthinkable that Saul paid little attention when it was first told to him that there's this person, uh, David, who's the son of Jesse. I don't know about you, but I forget people's names all the time and have to be reminded. So that's not out of the question. But that's not the real point, and that's not even the best answer. For there's much more going on here. It is wrong to assume that when Saul asked the question, whose son is he, that Saul is simply interested in the name of David's father. In the context, Saul had promised to make the household of the one who would slay Goliath free. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 25. It's one of the rewards. If you read 1 Samuel 17, 25, it reads, The man of Israel said, Have you seen this man, referring to Goliath, who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. So there's two things that are going to happen to the one who slays Goliath. One, his family's going to set free, and two, this person is going to become his son-in-law. <laughs> so it isn't amazing that Saul would want to know more about David's family if they're going to be set free and if he's going to be marrying into his family. He takes a greater interest in this point in David's family than he would have previously. Uh, certainly, there is nothing in this narrative that requires us to come to the conclusion that this is absolutely, totally inconsistent with chapter 16, is unexplainable, and you must uh, throw over the trustworthiness of, of Scripture simply because he doesn't use David's name or because he asks more concerning David's family. That's really background. This is really a progressive thought 
as we work through this passage. For now, we're going to address the issue of the eye of faith as it views success. The eye of faith as it views success. The eye of faith looks at the David and Goliath narrative far differently from one that does not have an eye of faith or one whose eye of faith is blurry and does not focus adequately upon God. Without an eye of faith, David's victory over Goliath can be explained simply as David's cunning and skills winning the day. One might ask, isn't God's establishment and enablement of David's victory over Goliath obviously? Obvious? Well, it's obvious if you have an eye of faith, but not necessarily obvious if you do not have an eye of faith. After all, the victory of God, uh, the victory of David over Goliath, it was not a miracle. It was not a contradiction of the laws of nature. Pride and self-confidence could easily have missed God's enablement of David. Goliath did not fall over dead by God's sending a bolt of lightning from heaven and striking Goliath down. God used David as an instrument. David had indeed defeated Goliath. It was the stone from David's sling that had killed Goliath. And so, if one removed God from the picture, one could come up with an explanation of how that was possible. What happens if you take away the eye of faith? Well, let's look at this narrative very quickly. Uh, Not in any detail. I'm just reviewing some facts that I believe most of you are well aware of. We went over in chapter uh, 17 two weeks ago with the battle of Goliath. But here we're focusing on looking at this battle purely from a human perspective, purely from looking at this as though God did not do anything special here. God did not enable David. This is what David did. Well, how could you explain that? How is this something that David could have done on his own? Well, David went out armed for this battle. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 40, it says, Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the rock and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, a sling was not a toy. And oftentimes it's derided, this aspect that David would go out to battle with a sling. But a sling was a deadly weapon. And not only was it a deadly weapon, it was a weapon of war. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we have an account of David's mighty men. They're described in their military prowess and abilities. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, it says this. Now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag, while he could not move about freely because of Saul and the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either 
the right hand or the left. The first mighty men that are commended are, here are bowmen, here are archers who could shoot a bow or use a sling, either left-handed or right-handed. They were mighty men of war. David used a weapon of war to defeat Goliath. Next in the fight, David's size and youth proved not to be a disadvantage. David did not need to be huge to whip a sling. Well, it doesn't have to be nine feet tall in order to be able to do that. David did not engage Goliath in hand-to-hand combat. Therefore, Goliath's size was of no great advantage. He didn't fight Goliath in a way in which Goliath's height was a disadvantage. Next, David's lack of armor was not a disadvantage, but rather an advantage. David was not weighed down or encumbered with a coat of armor. David was able to run up to fight Goliath. He had the element of surprise. If you look at verse 48, it says, When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. Now, key words there, he arose, he got up, and he drew near. He's still going out to battle, all right? Uh, Nine feet, six inches tall, weighed down with 200 pounds of armor and all this stuff. Goliath is making his way to the battle line. Now notice in the text what happens next. Verse 48. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. I can do Goliath lumbering. I cannot do David running quickly to the battle line. You've got to kind of picture that yourself, okay? But you can picture it, can't you? All right, here's Goliath lumbering out there, and here's David, whippity quick, running up to the battle line, picking out his, he already has a sling in his hand, it tells us, grabs a stone and throws it before Goliath even gets there. And before he can even take the spear off of his shoulder. David's speed, quickness, youth, all proved to be an advantage. Even the fact that Goliath had a person in front of him with a shield was not a huge advantage. Look at verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. And his shield bearer was in front of him. So picture it. Here's Goliath lumbering toward the line. And he also has an individual that goes before him with a shield in his hand to protect Goliath. He's got the armor, he's got all the stuff. And even the guy with the shield in front of him. I can picture that. There he is, in front of Goliath. Now remember, Goliath is nine feet, I said six, somewhere between six and nine, depending on who uh, you read, nine, six, nine, nine. He's tall. And David smites Goliath by hitting him 
in the forehead with this stone. Now the forehead is the top of this nine foot six, nine foot nine inch giant. Okay? Right at the very top. If you've got a shield <laughs> and you're protecting Goliath and here's this guy whipping this, this sling and all of a sudden, look at he split, a stone flies out. Nine foot six, nine is up there. The shield bearer isn't nine foot six. And so he's got to go up like this. You know what this was? This was a perfect shot. This is like the shot on goal in soccer. When the guy kicks the ball to the top right side of the net, just out of the reach of the goalie. It was just an incredible shot on David's part. And, David, and Goliath is defeated. Now, why do I say all that? Is that to try to erode our faith and confidence in God? Not at all. But rather to simply illustrate how easy it is to view even the greatest accomplishments and not give God the credit, but rather to give them the credit for human means. What is more striking is not the way we read the story, but David's response to the story. For David truly believes that God gave him the victory. David doesn't ascribe the victory to his speed, to his youth, to his skill with a sling, to his cunning, to his ingenuity, to thinking outside the box as he's going up to fight Goliath? No. He's not going to take the credit. He believes that God has given him the victory. And the point that I want to make this morning is that it's very careful for us, if we are not on guard, to begin to look at the successes that we enjoy in life and ascribe them to our hard work, to our diligence, to our abilities, our talents, and make it all about us and forget about God's enablement, forget about God's grace, forget about God's intervention and view life from purely a human standpoint. But David is fighting for the glory of God. And David, in fighting for the glory of God, does not fail to give God glory for the victory that follows. I made a lot out of the fact two weeks ago that David, when he fought, was fighting for the glory of God and not for the reward that Saul offered. I want to show you this morning that that matters. We're back to this aspect that character matters. What difference did it make that David was fighting for the glory of God and not reward? And, and how do we really know that's true? 
that David was fighting for the glory of God and not some reward that the king was, was giving. Well, we can see it in David's response, which is the third point of which we are now going to slow down. The eye of faith, as it views disappointment and personal injustices. The eye of faith, as it views disappointments and personal injustices. David experienced many disappointments and personal injustices. Saul had made a threefold promise to anyone who would slay Goliath. There was going to be a reward. And that reward is described in verse 25, if you look with me at 1 Samuel 17. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will, now here's the threefold reward, number one, Enrich the man who kills him with great riches. Number two, and will give him his daughter. And number three, make his father's house free in Israel. Those three things are to be done for the one who slays Goliath. Now, Goliath is slain, and he's slain by David. But God, excuse me, but Saul does not follow through on any of these promises. He does not reward David in the way in which Saul said he would be rewarded. First, David experiences the disappointment and injustice of his family not being promoted. David's family was not elevated, as was promised. Not much is said about the family, but let me point out two things. First of all, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 2, it said, And Saul took him that day, and, here's the key for this thought, and would not let him return to his father's house. Now up until this point, David has been going back and forth from Saul's presence to his house and his father's house. But now, from that point on, David is not allowed to return to his home. He must stay, not just in the employ of Saul, but away from his home. And secondly, and perhaps more significantly, if you look at chapter 18, verse 18, where Uh, David is going to be offered this opportunity to become the son-in-law of the king. If you look at verse 18, it says, And David said to Saul, Who am I? And now this next phrase, And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? There's nothing special about my family. There is nothing unique about them. They had not been elevated. They had not been promoted. (laughs) They had been not made to look as significant 
in Israel. They are still the lowly family that they always were. Saul had done nothing for David's family. The second promise, I'm going to take them out of order, the second promise was to make the slayer of Goliath rich. He would be enriched. David experiences the disappointment and injustice of not being made rich. Even after David kills Goliath, David is still very poor. If you look at verse 23 of chapter 18, And Saul's servant spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man. I'm a poor man. I don't have any money. And the reality of David's poverty is seen in verse 25. David had no money to pay a bride price to marry marry Saul's daughter. Verse 25. Then Saul said, Thus you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins. The bride price was the money that would normally be paid for the privilege of marrying someone's daughter. David is poor. David's wondering how he can come up with a bride price. How can he come up with any money? And the answer is, don't worry, you don't have to pay this in money. You can pay this in foreskins. You can pay this by going to battle. You don't have to come up with any money on your own. My point is that David had experienced this disappointment and injustice on two parts so far. One, that his family's not promoted, and two, that he's not made rich as Saul had said that he would be. And now third, which is the most significant, and that is David experiences the disappointment and injustice of Saul's repeated failure to give his daughter to David in marriage as a result of David's victory over Goliath. If you remember in verse 25 of chapter 17, this threefold reward, threefold promise of the one who would kill the giant Goliath, and of verse 25. Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will, number one, enrich the man who gives him with great riches, and two, give him his daughter. Give him his daughter. So as a result of David fighting Goliath, David was to receive Saul's daughter in marriage. That was the promise. But Saul places a new condition on David to marry Saul's oldest daughter, even after David had defeated Goliath. If you look at 18, verse 17, now first chapter, 18, 17, sorry, we're jumping all over the place here, but then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife only Be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. 
I will give you my daughter on the condition that you are brave and you fight my battles. Well, David is brave and fights the battles. Verses, verse 18. Even when David meets this new condition, Saul still does not keep his word, but rather gives his daughter to be married to another. Verse 19. But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Moholite, for a wife. So here is again this disappointment and injustice. He should have been given the older daughter simply because he defeated Goliath. Saul says, I'll give her to you if you are valiant and you fight my battles. He's valiant and he fights the battles, and he still is not given the daughter, but someone else is. (laughs) Someone who doesn't deserve it. Someone to whom the promise was not made. Someone who had not killed Goliath. Someone who had not done what David had done. Now, once again, Saul offers his younger daughter in marriage to David with still another condition. Still another hoop to jump through. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, uh, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give him to let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistine may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. Now, Saul's out to kill David. We saw that last week already. But Saul would like to make it look like he didn't kill David. He'd like for the Philistines to kill David. And so he's setting David up in order to be slain by the Philistines. So he's going to ask for these foreskins from the Philistines in order that David be killed. But he couches it and presents it in such a way that this is a reward for doing my bidding and I will give you my daughter. Verse 25, then Saul said, thus you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. What I want to focus our attention on is David's reaction to these disappointments and injustices. How does David respond? This man of faith, this man who wants to bring glory to God, the man who it says is a man after God's own heart, how does he respond 
How does he respond to being robbed of these rewards? Of failing to receive what he deserved? Of being repeatedly lied to? Of having the conditions for marrying Saul's daughter being changed time and time and time again? How does he respond? David does not respond as many would expect. He is not angered at Saul or God, nor does he feel that he has been abandoned by God. He still perceives that God is with him. He is not bitter. He does not retaliate. He is not depressed or consumed with self-pity. He continues to faithfully serve God and therefore serve Saul. He responds with an incredible humility. When David is offered Saul's daughter Merib, David views himself as unworthy to marry Saul's daughter. Look at verse 18. David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? Who am I? Who am I? Why would this be done for me? Who am I? Well, if you don't have an eye of faith, (laughs) and your desire is not to bring honor and glory of God, That answer can be, who am I? I'm the one who killed Goliath. I'm the one that all these things were promised to. I am the one that you deceived. I'm the one that's anointed to be the future king over Israel. He says at the end of verse 18, who am I that I should be son-in-law to the king? David easily could have said, who are you that deserves me as a son-in-law? It's much more privileged that I'm your son-in-law than you are my father-in-law. Why don't you respect me? That is totally not only out of the vernacular of David, it doesn't even cross his thought pattern. Who am I? Then later, after once again he's deceived, after once again he's disappointed, after once again he does not get to marry Saul's daughter, we have verse 23. And Saul spoke, and Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? David says, Do you think that's a light thing? I don't have any money. I don't have any reputation. 
David's already loved by the people. They're already singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. David is already the one who is renowned for the killing of Goliath. He says, I have no reputation. What humility. What an incredible self-evaluation to view himself in that light. And it's real. These aren't just words. Because David remains faithful to Saul and to God. Excuse me, did I say David remained faithful to Saul and to God? Why this incredible response? Well, it goes all the way back to before David slays Goliath. David does not view himself, or anyone for that matter, worthy of the reward that is going to be given. I pointed that out two weeks ago. Verse 26 of chapter 17, 17, 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? What's going to be given him? And he's incredulous. Why? Why would all this stuff be given to the one who slays Goliath? The reason he gives, verse 26, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine so that he should defy the living armies of God? God is going to give this victory. Why are we going to elevate some person for giving such accolades to what God is going to enable them to do. It doesn't compute in David's mind, for God deserves the glory and the credit. That's easy to say going into battle. But that humility remains coming out of battle. Once Goliath is defeated, David doesn't lose sight of the fact that God had done this, not him. He's still as amazed at this reward after he kills Goliath as he was amazed before he kills Goliath. It hasn't gone to his head. And it makes him view all of life so differently. So differently. Why? David truly believed that it was God who had gotten victory over Goliath. He did not credit himself with that great victory. David had truly thought for God's glory alone, and not at all for personal advancement. So when the personal advancement did not come, he wasn't disappointed. I kept using this phrase about being disappointed, but he wasn't disappointed. 
Because his eye wasn't on the reward. His eye was never focused on being rich or being Saul's son-in-law or in the promotion of his family. His eye was on the glory of God. His eye was on vindicating God in this victory. And because that's where his focus was, this other stuff rolled off his back. It didn't matter. After David fought Goliath, David was still concerned about the glory of God and so conducted himself in such a way that God was continued to be glorified. For David, what mattered most was how he was going to conduct himself before God, how he was going to submit to God. And so for David, how he responded to these disappointments and injustices mattered greatly. And it governed that response. It governed that response. What is so remarkable is we're able to read these narratives and we get all the inclusions of the statement that God was with David and we see that three times in this chapter even uh, chapter 18 let alone in chapter 17 God was with David God was with David God was with David David wasn't hearing that whispered into his ear. David had to accept that by faith. There was no one telling David repeatedly God was with him. It's told to us so we don't lose sight of it. It's told to us so that we realize the importance. But nobody's whispering that in David's ear. You know how easy it is to question whether God is with us or not when somebody's out to kill us? You know how easy it is to question whether or not God is with us when we meet with disappointment? Do you know how easy it is to question whether or not God is with us when we are treated unjustly, when we are lied to, when we are denied a position that we deserve? when things aren't going our way, when we have been faithful and done what was right and sowed courage and faith, and the reward is that none of those earthly rewards come to pass, there is David's faith. I submit to you that's a greater faith than he had when he went out to fight Goliath. That's even a greater conquering of heart and mind to submit to the will of God in that, fa in that fashion. 
application. When we go to bed tonight, or any night, there is no journal that we can open that recounts the events of the day and points out the fact that God was with us. There's nobody whispering in our ears saying, look at what God has done for you today. Look how God has enabled you. Look how God has prospered you. Look how God has made you successful. We have to take all of that by faith. And I submit to you that it's all too easy to look at life and take God out of the picture and begin to ascribe our accomplishments, our victories, our achievements as ascribing to our own strength, hard work, initiatives, like we could read the story of David and Goliath and put the emphasis on David and not God. It's so easy to feel deprived of what we deserve. For example, our health. If we are in good health, it's easy to attribute our good health to our diet, our exercise, our getting the right amount of sleep. We are healthy because look at all the commitments we've made. Look at at all the precautions we're taking. We, We take the right vitamins. We do the right things. I deserve to be healthy. When we're unhealthy, we might question God's goodness. We might feel cheated. Why am I not healthy? I exercise. I eat the right things. I do this. I do that. There are some Christians even that believe that health is a promise from God. If you're faithful to God, he'll reward you. And you will be healthy. Therefore, I'm healthy because I'm faithful. Well, let me tell you. Faithful people get sick. Faithful people get, get cheated. Faithful people are deprived and disappointed. The non-believing eye focuses on our deservedness. It's easy to look at life and say, I deserve that promotion. I work hard, I'm better, I'm there first. I deserve that promotion. I deserve to be a starter and not sit on the bench. Why aren't I playing? I'm a better player. That person must be the coach's pet. I'm angry. I I don't get to play like I should get to play. I deserve to have the lead in the school play. I sing better. I'm a better actor. I deserve to be an elder or deacon in the church. I'm committed. I'm this. I'm that. I deserve to be happy. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. 
It's so easy to talk in flowery spiritual language. And one of the, the most precious ways of thinking about God is God's grace in dealing with us. Unmerited favor. God's grace, God's enablement. If I'm at work every day, it's by God's grace that he gives me the strength to do so. If I have character that's praiseworthy, it's because he's done a work in my heart and causes me to be a person other than what I would be without him. Selfish and rude, anything but demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. It's easy to talk about God's grace, but so easy to lose sight of God's grace. So easy to talk about what we deserve as opposed to what we don't deserve. To elevate ourselves. The eye of faith sees God at work. The eye of faith sees as the highest goal in life is to glorify God. I want you to think about that for a moment. Is that true? Westminster Catechism. Though we don't memorize the Catechism, I think probably everyone knows here this morning the answer to the question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To put it in scriptural language, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So easy to say that, but so hard to live it. David's fighting for the glory of God was not a one-off. It wasn't a one-time thing done and over. David's concern for the glory of God extended to the way that he responded to the disappointments and the injustices of life. May we so be concerned with the glory of God that it rules our responses in all of life that we're concerned that the response I have is not about defending myself or getting what I deserve, but I'm concerned that my response in life will bring glory to God. And there's so much more in this passage. From bringing this glory to God, there's God at work in Saul's life, God at work in Jonathan's life, God at work in David's life, God at work in the nation's life. God has a purpose in all these things. And David can't possibly know what those purposes are, but we're going to see them. We're going to see them come to pass. We understand, we understand 
that God is at work. By faith, let us never lose sight of we serve a, God, a sovereign God who's at work. And so we can rejoice in any circumstance of life for God is at work. And we want to honor and glorify him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the life of David. We thank you for your spirit at work in David's life and his desire to honor and glorify you in the slaying of Goliath and how that really was his true motive. It wasn't the threefold reward. And so, Lord, David wasn't disappointed for he got what he wanted and that is that God was glorified. He got what he wanted, and that is that God's name was not mocked. His joy and delight was fulfilled. Oh, Lord, help us to so want to honor and glorify God that we are delighted simply when that goal is accomplished. And so, Lord, help us to faithfully, in all circumstances of life, govern and submit ourselves to your will that we respond in a way in which we don't show anger, we don't show bitterness, we don't become defensive, we don't take matters into our own hands. But we could say, even with David, who am I? Who am I? Thank you, Lord, for your grace in our lives. Thank you for what you've allowed us to accomplish. Thank you for the promotions we've received. Thank you for the health that we have. Thank you for the wages that we possess. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.